can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Welcome to Football Insiders, the home of Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Over the coming weeks, we've got a number of really interesting podcasts to come to you because it's not the usual format of, of me talking with someone, but recordings from the 2020 Football Writers Festival, which was held in Manly on the 21st and 22nd of November. It was a great event and we had lots of terrific speakers and really good sessions as, as well as the opportunity for really genuine, authentic football people to get to know one another and to network with one another. But for the first one, um, we've got one of the most eagerly anticipated sessions, and that's the one with the, well, he's not quite so new now, but newish FFA CEO, James Johnson, who is in conversation with Vince Regari from Fairfax Media, oh, sorry, not Fairfax Media anymore, Nine Media, and particularly the Sydney Morning Herald. So we're taking you straight into the opening of that session, and uh, it goes for the full session, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm Vince. I'm a writer for the Sydney Morning Herald, um, one of the uh, endangered species of Australia at the moment, us football writers at mainstream outlets. So uh, look after us, eh? Um, I do know who our next guest is. It's, it's James Johnson, the CEO of, of Football Federation Australia. Probably got one of the hardest jobs in Australian sport, I would have thought, um, especially at the moment, the year we've had, James. A um, few curveballs you didn't see coming, that's for sure. You're probably the first CEO in Australian sport to deal with COVID, actually. That was, um, it feels like 10 years ago, but it was way back in January when um, we had the Olympic qualifiers. We were supposed to go to Wuhan with the, with the Matildas, which is just crazy to think of at the moment. Um, when, did, when did you know that things were going to get big on you? A lot bigger than that, a lot bigger than just trying to bring those qualifiers here. Thanks, uh, thanks Vince, and good afternoon to yourself. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, friends of football, I'm very happy to be here, let me just say, uh, as an introductory mark, um, it's great for FFA to come to these events because uh, it's about football, it's about debating football, it's about putting issues on the table and speaking openly. And for us, um, we want to bring football back to FFA and we want to bring FFA back to football. It's important for us, so we're very happy to be here. Um, Vin Vince is right. Uh, COVID for me it was was pretty much the first thing I had to deal with in my first weeks in office. Um, I was, I think it might've been the second or third week, but I got a call from Ante Milicic at the time, who was a Matilda's coach. And Ante said, JJ, uh, I need your help. I said, Ante, what's up? And he said, we've got the Matildas in camp. Um, you need to come and talk to them because they don't want to go to Wuhan. And Wuhan was where the Olympic qualifiers for the Matildas were going to be. So anyway, I didn't really understand what the issue was. Um, I wanted to help our national team coach, and it was an opportunity for me to meet the Matildas because I hadn't met them before. But essentially got in a room with the team, and they said, look, there's this thing called the coronavirus. I had sort of heard of it at the time. This was late January, I think, early February. And uh, they said, we don't want to go to Wuhan. We're not going to fly. And I said, look, I'm happy to try to strong-arm the AFC and, and FIFA but the reality is if you don't go, you're probably not going to go to the Olympics. I mean, that's the reality. 
Anyway, the thing that was interesting is that Matilda's team, the leadership team, they had this weird feeling. And this feeling was that they didn't think that um, um, it just didn't feel right to them to go. So nevertheless, we, we, we listened to them, we learnt from them, we said that we would go into bat. We spoke with FIFA and the AFC and we said we're not going. And then over the next two to three weeks, that was going into February this year, um, we, we, we told the governing bodies that they wouldn't be attending. Things started to blow up with, with coronavirus. Everyday cases were going up further and further and further. And ultimately, it was a good decision. It was a good decision. And the next thing we know, we were talking with FIFA and AFC about where we would host the Olympics. And we offered to bring the Olympic qualifiers back here to Australia, to Sydney. Um, and that's what happened. And if you remember, um, February, I think late February this year, we were dealing with the Chinese women's national team coming into Australia and we have having to deal with uh, federal government and the Queensland state government trying to get them out of quarantine. But that was my uh, first few weeks in office, Vince. So there really hasn't been a COVID uh, or a period without COVID since I've started here. Yeah. So the theme of this discussion is supposed to be crisis, opportunity, change. It's it's felt like a, a big year of crisis for well, the world, really, but Australian football in particular. Um, but there's obviously going to be opportunities in it. I mean, we heard, unfortunately, under Chatham House rules, so whoever's watching this on, on the stream won't, won't know what we're talking about. But in this room, we had just had you know, two of the most powerful people in A-League land letting us in a little bit on, on what the future looks like. And, and it sounds exciting if everything goes to plan, that's for sure. Um, what what do you think is the biggest opportunity here at the moment as a result of the crisis we've just had for, for football? And I guess for FFA in particular, knowing that it's going to be a very different FFA to what we've sort of grown to know. I think the the opportunity for the sport is is transformation. I, I say that in a, in a general context and I'll, I'll get into specifics but i think the we've been part of a, a system a governance model for for the best part of a century now where um change has been difficult to make um that's a reality and i think the opportunity is that COVID is forcing us as a sport to change if we go back to march this year when the tsunami hit um we thought about two strategic strategic objectives. The first one was to ensure that from an organisational perspective, um, FFA could, could be above water. We didn't want it to sink financially. So we really had to focus on making difficult decisions, really difficult decisions. We had to stand down 70% of our staff. We had to turn off um, a big part of our distribution to member federations. We had to reduce very significantly distributions to A-League clubs. We had to negotiate a new CBA with the Players Union. We had to negotiate a new agreement with Fox. So this all came together, but really what we were trying to do is make sure that that we were not insolvent. And, and the good news for us was that we're now in a position where we are above water and our finances are safe and will be safe. But the second um, strategic objective was really to try to look for the opportunity during the challenging times. Um, and what we meant by that is we wanted to try to set not just ourselves, but the sport up for success as we come out of, out of COVID. Um, I think we're still probably six to eight months away, to be perfectly honest, from coming out of COVID. But what we've tried to do um, are things like we went hard for the Women's World Cup. This was uh, important because we knew that 
with with the World Cup coming in in 23, particularly with the rise of women's football, that this could help stimulate change and transformate transformation sport. So this was a big focus for us um, in terms of trying to find the opportunity. We really focused on our di digital platforms. I, I don't know if, uh, if if you follow the FFA um, uh, Twitter and Facebook and our, our digital feeds, but they've gone through the roof. So um, some numbers for you, the Socceroos, um, uh, digital pages have gone up 244% during COVID. The Matildas have gone up 92% during COVID. So we've tried to start a, a, a digitalization, if you like, um, of the sport. Um, we've tried to set a vision. We've set up what we call the 11 principles as a 15 year vision. And, and importantly for us, we wanted to get closer to the football constituents around the country. So we went through a large consultation process and really try to understand not what we thought sitting in the head office in, in, in Oxford Street in Sydney, but really try to understand what was important to the football community at all levels and what challenges um, were out there. And there were some things that surprised us. Um, so we went through a very lengthy consultation and we now have a, a vision, which is the, um, the what and the why, as we call it, uh, not the practical steps on how we deliver on that vision, but we have a vision now, 15-year vision, that I think has been developed uh, in close consultation with the football community. And I think that was an opportunity that we took advantage of. We've also really tried to position women's football as, as a, a really key part of football. Not only did we go for the Women's World Cup, but we went for the under 17 and under 20 uh, Asian championships. Um, and these will be played next year here in Australia in regional areas of the country. So what we were trying to do is bring the beautiful global game back to our local communities. And we think that's a good opportunity because we will see in country areas of Australia international football. And we think that's something that's that's different. Um, the other aspect is the unbundling. And I know you had Simon and Danny here just before, but this is something that we really fast-tracked during COVID. And this will be a big change for the sport, the way it's governed, the shape of FFA, the future shape of the league, the commercial rights will be will, will be split, the roles and responsibilities will look very different to what we know at the moment. So, in my in my view, anyway, I think we've um, we've we've made some good progress during this year, which I think will set us up as we come out of COVID. But the two big pieces for me is the Women's World Cup and also the unbundling. And in my view, anyway. Um, these are two ticket items that are bigger than any transformational changes that have happened in this sport in the past 15 years. Well, we'll jump into both of those, JJ, but we may as well start with the A-League because it's probably fresh in, in our minds, certainly in this room. Um, it's taken a long time to unbundle, probably the Guinness World Record for unbundling, if such a, a record exists. Um, the fact that it's taken so long, does that speak to, I guess, how difficult it is to change things in Australian football? Um, it must have been a frustrating process for everyone involved. Um, and this is, you know, this is a great opportunity to change things. And this is hopefully going to happen within the next week and a half. But does that just speak to, I guess, some of the some of the gridlocks we've got in the game and and the difficulties in that space? Yeah, I think I think that's right, Vince. Um, I can't speak for what happened uh, before January because I wasn't I wasn't here. But what I can say is um, we didn't. Uh, since January, we really didn't focus on the unbundling until the end of the A-League season. And that's because 
we're still technically the, the, the owner of the competition. Even today we are. We've uh, agreed principally to unbundle now and it will go through. Um, but we had to uh, run the competition. We had to close the competition in, in about March. We had to negotiate new labor agreements, new commercial agreements, and then restart the competition during COVID. And this was this was challenging. And we had to do that in close collaboration with both the clubs and the players. Um, and we did that and we delivered that. Uh, the season finished um, in, in, in September. And then we literally went straight into unbundling. And I sat down with with Paul Lederer and and Simon Pierce, and we we said, look, we've just got to get this done now. And it was a very intense uh, ten to twelve weeks. That was really the time that 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 we set ourselves. Um, it did involve not just a bilateral negotiation with the clubs. That's where it started. But we really need to bring the member federations into that process. And this is because of a historical um, political agreement with the member federations, where if you remember the Congress issue that I think happened three or four years ago, um, there was an agreement that the member federations would need to approve the the what the, the governance structure looked like. So we did the deal with the clubs. We then brought the member federations um, into the discussion. Uh, and then most recently, we, we've all agreed that we know what the new shape will look like. So we did hear a little bit about what the new A-League is going to look like from the A-League side. Um, what does it look like for FFA? You, you're going to have a golden share. What can you do with that? What can't you do with that? And sort of, you know, can you take us through a little bit more of the detail around the unbundling and what that means for FFA? Yeah, I think if you look at uh, we, if you look around the world, there's 211 football countries around the world, and about 70 of those 211 um, have professional football. And within most of those professional football countries, the league has become unbundled from the federation. So the the way we've tried to structure the model here in Australia is we've tried to look at global best practices, um, but we've tried to apply it in a specific way to to, to, to meet the specific challenges um, of Australian football. Now, what does that mean concretely? Um, in principle, the FFA will regulate the competition. It will regulate. So the FFA becomes a government, if you like, of the league, and the league would then become the the private operator. So the way I like to describe it is, is I would look at it as a government. That's the FFA's role. And then you have the private sector, which is the league. And within those checks and balances, I think there's a lot of good stories because we want the league to grow. It's important commercially for the game. There are uh, bits and pieces within that agreement that incentivize FFA so that the league will grow because we get a percentage of what they they generate, but then we're far enough from the competition where we can independently uh, look at issues and regulate. So when it comes to things like the transfer system or player eligibility rules or club licensing or access to the competition expansion, etc., these are areas that FFA would retain. And of course, it would be done in close consultation with the clubs, but ultimately FFA would take those decisions. So we're talking um, if the A-League wants to expand, they can't do it without FFA approving whatever they want to do. Yeah, and that, that's through a golden share, but there's there's a, a, a more, um, uh, I would say, it's not just a, a check, if you like. Um, in, in practice, what we would do is we would set up some transparent um, criterias around expansion, and what we've agreed principally is that these criterias would include uh, a commercial aspect like exists at the moment, but we would go further than that because we're trying to bring football back into the organisation. It would also include 
um, a sporting merit uh, bundle and also um, a football bundle. So when we sit down and we set criteria around where expansion should go, there's a broader range of issues that we're looking at. Which market would be important from a football perspective? Um, which clubs have performed well both in the FFA Cup and the NPLs? Um, and which club has has ownership that can bring in the right um, commercial aspect to the league? So just honing in on a little bit on that sporting merit aspect, I mean, the ultimate sporting merit is promotion relegation. We don't have that, but it sounds like you're suggesting that you know, clubs that do well in the NPL or, or the FFA Cup would look be looked upon favourably by FFA if they wanted to join the A-League. Well, I, I think so. Um, I mean, promotion relegation is 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 interesting, but what, I, what I'd ask the audience, uh, you know, I think the word promotion rele- relegation gets thrown around as a, as a term. I like promote, I, I like promotion relegation. I, I love it. It's, it's a great, brings a lot of interest, but we've got to really think about what does promotion relegation achieve? What, what are its strategic objectives? And usually, if you boil it down to the strategy, you're talking about incentivizing clubs to grow across the country. You're talking about ensuring that clubs at the bottom of the competition table are incentivized to, to play better. So it, it creates more tension. Um, and, and there are other ways that, that we can achieve these objectives that aren't necessarily just through the traditional promotion relegation model. Um, I like to use the example of Mexico. In Mexico, they have a, a system, and it'd be interesting to, to hear your view anyway, Vince, on whether you would consider this promotion relegation. But the way their system works is that, first of all, they play two seasons in every one calendar year. And over a six-season period, so three years, the team that does the worst is relegated. And then they have criteria around expansion into Liga MX. So that's a, um, a, a way that the North Americans, Mexico in this case, have tried to balance the best aspects of a closed system like their neighbours in the United States with what they consider um, important sporting criteria like they know further south in, in, in South America. I mean, it works for Mexico, I guess, but I think uh, a lot of people in Australian football would want to see a more traditional system of promotion and relegation. And by that, I mean, I guess, what we all grew up on watching European football, England, Italy, Spain, up and down, which would mean a, a national second division, which sort of pivots us onto one of the thousands of topics I wanted to talk to you about today, JJ. Um, it seems like we've been talking about a second division and promotion relegation in the game for a few years mm. before you got here, that's for sure. But we still actually don't know how, what it would look like. Do the numbers add up? Can it even happen, at least in that way? Um, how do we not know that yet? Mm. Well, I'll answer your questions. Can it happen? Yes, it can happen. Um, do the, the the numbers add up? This is the work that's being done at the moment. Um, my personal view is that this is a fundamental question. I don't think we can say we're going to do it until we know that it's going to be sustainable and viable, and it can be. It can be. But when you start um, getting into the nuts and bolts of running a competition, there are financial aspects that are material. Um, so it might, for instance, not look like in the end, maybe it does, and if it does, this is even better, but it might not look like your tradi- traditional 18 teams, home and away, um, second-tier competition. I would personally like that, and I think that's where we should try to aim for. But but I think we need to look at different ways in which we can um, 
do something practical, but also establish a second tier. And this is not the only model that exists around the world. Um, of course, if we can get there, I think that's great. Because like you, I grew up watching European football as well. And I think that's very interesting. But I think what we also need to do when we get to the second tier is we need to find a competition model that offers the fans something different to the A-League. And I think this is where you can start getting into the promotion relegation discussions because, you know, if you have a fully open competition that's second tier and you have a link through promotion relegation to the NPL's playoff system, I think this is something different to what the A-League offers. And I think this is a good thing. Um, with the golden chair, can you just tell the A-League clubs in the newly independent future, um, hey, it's happening in this year. Pro-Rail is coming in and, that, and that's it. Because I think a lot of the people out there think that one of the biggest roadblocks to it, I guess, is the A-League clubs because it's you know, evidently in some ways not in their interest to have promotion relegation. They say they agree with it in principle publicly, but with no sort of firm timelines around it, it becomes very easy to say that without any threat of it actually coming in. And so it's sort of – we've been at that point for a few years. I mean, is it eventually going to come to a stage where FFA might have to dictate to the clubs that, it, that it's coming in at this date? or at this stage when you guys deem it's, it's viable to do so? Yeah, it's, it's possible. That's the answer. I think it's possible. that The, the challenge is, though, is um, there's a, a, a contract that's been agreed between FFA and the clubs. I don't know when, if you, if you go back through the, the years, you, you'll be able to find it, where licences have been awarded, um, I think, until 2034, around there, there or thereabouts. So your challenge is um, you've got a contract that does that and and then businesses have, and I'll, I'll speak in a commercial sense, businesses have bought into that and they've invested on that basis. Then to change the policy and the regulation being the same body that did that contract, that presents some challenges. Um, is it impossible? No. Is it practical? I'm not sure. Do you have, um, what, what's the level of, confidence you've got in the A-League clubs moving forward. The, the analogy kept getting used before is they're about to get the keys to the car. Hopefully, it's going to be a great car, you know, good fuel economy, that sort of thing, you know, good airbags. No. Yeah, and don't, we need to keep the keys. No, but like the last few months, um, in fact, the last few years, the A-League's been in a bit of a halfway house. It's not quite FFA's responsibility. Well, it is FFA's responsibility, but it's felt like the A-League's been abandoned in some ways and the A-League clubs, I guess, haven't pulled out their plans because they don't have the keys to the car yet. Do you think they're, they're going to do a good job of it at the moment based on what you know and your, and your dealings with them? Yeah, I do. I, look, as some of you might know, um, uh, a job I did before returning to Australia for many years was I headed up professional football at FIFA. So um, if I look at the um, professional game that exists around the world, um, when leagues start to unbundle, that's always a sign of, of professionalization. So I think, I think it's a good move personally. I think we might find some, um, some challenges that we've got to deal with over the first two, three years, but that's also why we've, in the model that we've agreed to, we've, we're going to maintain a very strong hands when it comes to the A-League. So it's like, uh, they're like our children. They've grown up. They're about to move out of house but the house is always going to be there for them and we need to support them become more independent and grow into young adults. Um, so we'll certainly be supporting them. I think that it will work. 
Um, but th there are going to be some challenging times, particularly over the next two, three years as we come out of COVID. The reason is, is because um, the practical one for next season anyway will be COVID. We can't put people in stadiums at full capacity. This is an issue. The second is that the whole broadcast um, uh, environment across the world, not just in Australia, is changing at the moment, right? When I'm in Zurich at FIFA, we're talking about the big leagues soaking up a lot of the value in the broadcast market around the world, and that is happening. That's a reality. That's something that is impacting a smaller market uh, like Australia, and that's the same with the sponsorship. Sponsors at the moment are investing more in the bigger leagues around the world, and there's less money for the small leagues. So these are all challenges that the professional game will go into over the next two or three years for sure. But do I think it's the right move? Absolutely, I do. While we're on the A-League and we'll get to the World Cup and broadcasting, well, hopefully, because there's so much to talk about and not enough hours left in the day. But let's talk about Wellington Phoenix for a moment. Um, that's been a bit of fun in the last couple of weeks, hasn't it? Um, they wanted in in the W-League. Um, that's not happening because FFA rejected their request to change the player eligibility rules to mirror the A-League's eligibility rules. Um, why? Why did that happen? And sort of... How did we get that far into the process without a very clear understanding from both sides that it was always going to be predicated on such a change? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm the big bad wolf in, in New Zealand, <laughs> so I keep hearing. Um, but look, the, look the, the long and the short of it is we're starting a competition next month, 27 December, the W League is kicking off. The W League is important for us not just because we've got a Women's World Cup, but because women's football is such a key pillar of the FFA today. Um, we did receive a late application from Wellington Phoenix to participate in the competition, and we tried to accommodate that because we thought, okay, it, it, it could meet our own strategic objectives. A new team means more matches. It's a new story for the league. Okay, I don't particularly like the process because it's rushed, but let's see if we can make the expansion work. But we said at the very start of the conversation, we would not change the player eligibility rules. And why is that? Well, the reason is we've just gone through a very lengthy um, analysis of football issues within the game on the men's side. And we're about to, uh, this coming week, release the same report, similar report for the women's game, but it, it has the same conclusions. And the report says that our players in our market don't play enough football. We are way off international standards with young Australian players playing football. And in the men's game, we're seeing issues with that at the moment because we don't have any big players playing in big European leagues today. And our view and our technical director's view and our uh, national team head coach view and our, our, our football ex experts, if you like, and the other experts we've engaged with and the data shows we don't play enough football. So what Wellington were asking us to do is they were asking us to cut and paste rules that apply to the A-League that have been in place for 15 years and put them into the women's game. And my issue with that, notwithstanding the process or the lack there of it, my issue was, well, we've just identified a problem with our player eligibility rules. Our Aussie players are not playing enough. Why would we replicate that in the women's game? And then in 15 years' time, we have the same issues perhaps in the women's game that we do now with the men's. And that was the logic behind it. So we said, no way, okay, we will 
um, listen to you about expansion, but we will not change our eligibility rules on the whim. There's a strategic conversation that we can have. Maybe with with New Zealand, it's uh, you know we ch- at the moment it's four plus one. That's how the foreign rules work in the W League. Maybe we go with a three plus two, and the plus two are New Zealand players. It can be spread across the competition, so there's not less opportunities for young Australian players. That's a strategic co- conversation we can have. So that offers there it remains for Wellington Phoenix and New Zealand football. But what we can't have is we can't create the same issues we have in the men's game in the women's because we cut and paste player eligibility rules. It's nonsense. So, I mean, it's not a massive logic leap to go from there to wonder how safe Wellington Phoenix's position in the Australian football ecosystem is. Now, I know that they're part of AFCA. Um, They're going to be one-tenth of the owner in the new league and um, the club owners seem to like Rob Morrison and a lot of fans like what Wellington Phoenix bring to the table. But um, that doesn't sound like a world that if I'm running Wellington Phoenix that I'd want to be too involved in because the whole idea of being a New Zealand club is that you want to have New Zealand players in your team. You want to have, like all the other A-League clubs are doing at the moment, uh, homegrown heroes, uh, local talents who the people can you know connect and say, I, I, you know, you're from where I'm from, so I'm going to follow that club. Um, how does that all add up to solving the problems we've got in the men's game as well? Well, I, I don't, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that we say that New Zealand players are always going to be foreign in a New Zealand-based team. I'm just saying that I think we can have a conversation. I think we've got to. When, when you're regulating, um, my view is before you just type words on a piece of paper, you've got to really understand what the challenges are. That's number one. Point number one: understand what the challenges are. And there's a, there's, there's work to do before that because you've got to do the data analysis. So you've got tangible evidence so that you can back up what the issues are, what the challenges are. Once you know what the challenges are, you've got to set objectives. And the j- objectives are what you draft your regulations around because they've got to achieve those objectives and solve those challenges. So I think the conversation is we have a problem, and this is a broader conversation than just Wellington Phoenix. We have a problem in Australia because we don't play enough football. How through our competition regulations, how through our competition structures, second-tier competitions, how through our formats um, so, so that more games can be played, more rounds, how do we achieve more match minutes for young Australian players? And I think that's where we've got to start. Um, let's jump a little bit into that sort of space, but maybe at a, at a couple of age groups lower. Um, there's, a, there's a story, the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald today, not by me, um, and I'm not saying you should read it just because I work there, but because it's a really interesting look at um, youth development in, in New South Wales and in particular the Skills Acquisition Program, um, which the story says is is a sort of it's a, it's a clicky, cutthroat environment where clubs, it, it seems, don't have the best interests of players at heart sometimes. There's stories about how uh, at one club um, a parent was told, um, your kid, yep, you're in the SAP, um, but you've got to pay a $500 deposit right now. And they had a, an FPOS machine on the sidelines. And like that's that's kind of crazy. And we've already got a problem with um, uh, the cost of playing football at that level, particularly in the in the elite sort of clubs and, and competitions and that sort of thing. And, and I guess broader, um, I wrote a story earlier in the year about futsal, which is a, a you know, the, the indoor form of, of soccer, but in Australia, it seems to be the domain of private enterprise. Basically, um, there's there's people who aren't associated with the governing of football in Australia have basically moved into a space that FFA have left open, 
and are charging people lots of money to do things that aren't necessarily aligned with the best interests of developing Australian footballers. And that, you know, that's replicated in the outdoor version as well. There's a lot of private academies. Um, there's a private academy league, which is continuing to grow in Sydney at a, at, a, at a pretty concerning rate if you think that that's not the right way to go about developing your footballers. And we're being told that the whole future of professional football, at least, is based on developing players, selling players, creating a transfer market, those clubs being able to make money off the players they develop and you know, bringing players through who are from that area so that people from that area will have a stronger connection to that club. It sounds like a complete mess, JJ, and it's, it's, it's a state federation problem at its heart, but you as FFA boss must be really – I mean, how does it make you feel to, to know that the development pathway is, is fractured in so many ways? It doesn't sound like a mess. It is, it is messy. This is, this is a fact. Um, when you're governing uh, football or, or any sports, um, you've got to create more benefits in the system than, they, than there are outside of the system. This is if you're at, at FIFA and you're trying to c- control 211 federations around the world, this is rule number one. More benefits in the system than, than outside the system. And for me, when it comes to player development, um, the big benefit for being in a system is a transfer system. This is a huge benefit because if you're a club at any level, you want to create what we would call in an, a global debate contractual stability. What that means, I'll break that down because a technical word, is that clubs want to um, keep players at their clubs for longer periods. Now, the reason that um, contractual stability is important for a club is because the longer they have a player at a club training the player, because it's not just having a player at a club, but training the player, is that when the player moves domestically, when there's a domestic transfer system, um, there is a revenue that goes back to the club that trained the player. And more importantly, and in my view, the big opportunity for our sport is when the player moves abroad. And I'm not talking about the big transfer fees where you know, a player goes to the Premier League because this this won't happen in the immediate future. I'm talking about the smaller transfers into East Asia, into the Middle East, or into countries like the Netherlands or, or, or Belgium or Croatia, which are destinations that a lot of players move to before they go to the big leagues. And even if a player moves um, from a Croatia to a Premier League, if you have a transfer system in place, if the clubs are protected if they have contractual stability in place, then there's always revenues that come back down. Um, this doesn't exist in our in our code. It exists in most countries around the world. And we're sitting here talking about, you know, the A-League, the A-League, the A-League. Yes, the A-League is important. It's important. Um, but I think if we introduce a transfer system, you're going to see clubs at all levels that have different reasons for setting up teams. The best game I've ever been to in my life was in Uruguay, it was Nationale versus Penarol, right? Orange and blue. Um, and it was full stadium in Montevideo. And I try to understand why so many people liked watching Uruguayan football when they could just watch Spanish football, right? It's time zones, not that different. The culture's the same. The reason that Uruguayans go and watch their football is because they know they're watching the next best players that are going to end up playing in Barcelona and Real Madrid. This is why they go. And I think if we can bring some of that mentality into that into our sport where clubs are uh, incentivized to develop players, we know if we're going to go watch a young 
you know, Mark Bosnich, for example, play for uh, Marconi, for instance, this is a player that could be playing for Aston Villa and Man United. There is something in that. Um, so anyway, to answer your question, there are challenges. It's messy. We have to create objectives. We've got to create interest for football to be under the pyramid. And I think the big ticket item is the transfer system. So like, can you maybe expand a little bit more on how you think that can directly resolve some of the issues I spoke about, which is, you know, a completely fractured development pathway where, um, you know, private enterprise and uh, maybe clubs with SAP licenses who aren't necessarily doing the right thing can spoil the experience for, for young kids. Because I think um, if, if you're – first of all, it changes a club's mentality. If I'm a club today in grassroots in the MPLs, what am I doing? I can't go up the pyramid and my players can be taken away from me. I don't get any revenues through a transfer system. Like this, this, if, you, if you think about globally, whether we're talking Africa, South America, Europe, what do clubs want? They want to move up a pyramid or they, they want to develop players so they can uh, um, receive revenues back, right? I think you put a transfer system, the first thing it does, it changes a club's mentality because all of a sudden the clubs are thinking, well, you know, if I put in a better TD and pay an extra $20,000 for a technical director, um, over three or four years, they're going to develop better players. You know, I need better scouts to go out and find players to bring to my club. Um, it starts to change a way a club thinks and the shape of the club. And I think we'll see that when we put in a in, in, in a transfer system. That's a sort of indirect way of changing it, though, I guess, is, you know, and I, I did say before, it's not really your responsibility. These, these are development situations are, if I'm not mistaken, member federation issues. Um, I'm sure you'd like to just go in there and sort it out yourself, but you, you can't. We've got a whole bunch of member federations in the country and um, we're going through this year figuring out where we can get better as a game and change. And it seems like there's roadblocks there. There's duplication all across. There's, you know, 10 different boards, 10 CEOs, 10 technical directors. Um, if I'm a 10-year-old kid and I grow up in um, South Australia or Queensland, I'm going to have a completely different um, development pathway to someone who grows up in Sydney or even Newcastle, which is another federation. Um, how can we resolve that when there are, you know, different state federations who wield the power there and, and seem intent on, on maybe not doing the same thing? They're not all on the same page. They're, they're doing what they think is right, obviously, but you've got 10 different versions of, of what's right or nine different versions. Yeah, it's, it's Australia's governance model is it's unique. I think it is. Um, we have FFA, and then we have states within states, so to speak. This is um, this is something that is unusual. I think certainly in in, in world football because it tends to be a national governing body that controls, drives strategy. Then your your bodies, your administrative bodies that exist below the national governing bodies, they purely run competitions. And that's it. And then they're affiliated directly, usually to the um, to the national federation. We d we do have um, a different model here. Um, I think we've got to make sure we, we we balance both sides. There's certainly challenges with um, with the model. Um, there have also probably been some benefits because I think the model perhaps has helped um, lift the number of grassroots players. That we've got across the country, but I, I do think it, it is time to to change. I think it's time to look at that model. Um, we've been very clear in our eleven principles what we think a model could look like. In particular, what the objectives we should be trying to 
achieve are. Um, and this is a conversation that we're starting now with with our member federations, where um, we've we've started a bilateral pilot with one member federation on what a one football modi uh, model could look like. Um, I won't say anything else on, on on who that is, but that work is happening um, at the moment. And what I can say is there's positive there's a positive attitude within the member federation space around this this change. Um, so I'm quite excited about what the future model could look like. Mm-hmm. We've got to learn from the pilot that we're doing with with one member federation at the moment. Um, and I would like to see in the future a, a, a closer uh, connection and, and less bureaucracies between different levels of the sport. Um, let's move on to 2023 which is um, it's going to be good fun. It was good fun learning that we were going to have it as well. It was one of the great moments. We really needed a moment like that this year, that's for sure. Um, we really don't have enough moments like that as a game, to be honest, where we all feel happy for the same reason. Um, we had a big tournament, though, a few years ago. We had the Asian Cup. Felt good getting that. Felt good at the time. Felt good when we won it, that's for sure. Um, but I don't know if it left any legacy at all. Um, Many of the people who came to A-League games who, um, sorry, I should say, many of the people who went to Asian Cup games who are from different communities represented in that Asian Cup, I think at the time we saw them and we thought, yeah, let's get them into A-League games. Let's give them memberships. Let's let's make them part of our game. And it doesn't feel like that happened. Um, how can we make sure we don't have that feeling again when the 2023 World Cup is passed? Yeah. Um, I think it's a fair comment. Um if I think about legacy, um, I think about United States in 1994. So if you traveled to the US before 94, you know, there was really, it wasn't like what we know football or soccer in, 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 in the United States today. Um, I think that what the Americans did well in 94 is they, they used the competition to create legacy and they created, they got their professional game rights. Um, they got their structures right. They allotted a lot of investment. They um, uh, put a lot of investment into women's football. And then 20-odd um, years later, you've got probably the greatest women's national team we've, we've ever seen. So um, I think we've got to look at examples that have worked. Uh, if we look at Brazil in 2014, there's no legacy like the Asian Cup. Um, so I think we've got to look at what other nations have done and how they've benefited benefited from legacy. But for us, legacy is important here. Um, I think it is different from the Asian Cup. You're talking about a competition that is a lot bigger than the Asian Cup. It's the biggest competition for women in in the world. Um, it's it's number three in in the world in terms of biggest competitions. We're going to have more than a billion people that will that will watch. Um, this competition on our shores. So it's something that we're spending a lot of time on at the moment internally where we're looking at um, creating a framework at the moment, different pillars. The two I can share with you at the moment um, are around facilities on one hand because we need to, and I'm not talking about the top of the pyramid facilities, I'm talking about grassroots facilities. I spoke with Sutherland Shire um, not too long ago and they're turning away thousands of players, grassroots players, every year because they don't have enough football pitches to play on. So this is a problem for us. It's a challenge for us. And we want to invest in these areas through legacy so that we can continue to remain competitive against other sports when it comes to our participation base. So this will be one pillar of our legacy framework, our ask to government. 
The other one which I can share to you is is share with you is high performance. Um, the high performance funding model for our code doesn't work. It doesn't work. We've got we got two point three million recently from the government, but if you look at other sports, basketball got five point five million. You've got paddle who got five point five million. You've got sailing who got eight million. What's paddle? Canoeing? Do you know? No, I mean, no he, 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 yeah, he doesn't know. And they're getting more money than us. I know it's a lot of money. Um, rowing, 8.3 million. So th- th- the, the reason that other sports like paddle are getting more money than our code gets is because the, the funding model revolves around Olympic gold medals. Um, and, of course, you're all football f- people, so I'm very comfortable speaking about this in front of this audience, but we know very well that in our code you have the Olympics, that's important, but you also have this thing called the World Cup and this is really important. And we know, um, we know, we know, uh, if the Matildas even got a medal in the Olympics or the Women's World Cup, we know how much impact that would have on this whole country, you know. And I ask yourselves to think about that versus a gold medal in one of these other sports. And I, and my personal view is that whole model needs to change. The Olympics happening next year, do you think, by the way, while we're talking about Olympics? Yes, I think it, I think it will. It's, um, it would be a real shame if it didn't because since 2004, uh, we haven't had two teams going and we've got a red hot Matildas team at the moment. They are a team that can win a gold medal. I believe that. Um, we've looked at this analytically. They, they've got a, a group of players that are amongst the best in the world. They're getting better every year. They're playing at the best clubs in the world. They're going to be a year older than what they were. Um, last year and they're peaking. We think we can win medals. So it'd be a real shame for us if the Olympics did not happen. I think it will. I think it will look different though. I think that we're still going to be dealing, uh, in August next year, um, on, on, um, quarantine periods and bubbles. So I think it's going to be complicated, but I do think it will go ahead. That, that number you shared before about our high performance funding from the government. So how much of the, is the Matildas getting of that money before next year? Cause it's all based on the sports they think we can get a gold medal in, right? And it seems like we're we're a good shot with the Matildas. We're you know we're in the conversation there, and that doesn't sound like a whole heap of money. Yeah, the majority of that is going to the Matildas. But look, our our pitch to government, and and we've got a um, we've got a, a government who I think is starting to see the vision because we're talking to them, and I I mean this. I think we can win the World Cup in twenty three um, if we're not going into that competition, not expecting to win it, I, th- I would be disappointed. And, and I'm not being airy-fairy, pie-in-the-sky stuff here. You, you've, got a, you've got a team that, that the core of the team will be 27-28. These are key football years. Um, they're on home soil and they're already number seven in the world. So if we're able to prepare for these tournaments like the United States who are playing three, four times the amount of matches that we are presently in the lead-up to the Olympics and then to the World Cup, um, I think that puts us in a very good position to uh, to be able to do something that this country's never done before. I'm mindful for time, so um, we'll try and wrap up by zooming out a little bit and then we'll open the floor for some questions because I think like everyone's got a thousand for you, JJ, to be honest. But um, I, I want to talk like we're, we're pretty lucky to have someone like you here because you worked at FIFA, at AFC. You sort of have your finger on the pulse and what's going on. Globally, you have direct knowledge, no doubt. Um, and football's moving, football's changing. COVID's accelerated, of course. Um, 
but there's plenty happening. And um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you also work for the City Football Group, is this notion of a European Super League, which regularly comes up. Um, from your knowledge of operating in, in, in that sort of space, can you ever see that happening? Uh Yes, in, in, in some shape or form. Um, the, this conversation about a European Super League, it, it is always happening. It's, it's not like it comes up every year or two. It, it, it's continually happening. Um, the way the big European clubs see it is you take Juventus, for example. You, you, Juve, Fenton? Yeah, you are, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, Juve will say, well, hang on a minute. We've won the Serie A for the last seven, eight years. And we don't really see ourselves as an Italian club anymore. That's how they think. We see ourselves as a European club and we think there's more interest in playing the Barcelonas and the Real Madrids um, more often than we do playing uh, sort of fit number 15 to 20 Serie A team. Like that's how they think. And when you look at the the, 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 the data, certainly the data that, that they would show, um, you'll see things like uh, the market in the developing world or the, the football developing world in, in Japan and China and Korea and Indonesia, that's actually what they want to watch. They want to watch the big brands play more often against each other. Um, so this is the logic behind the big clubs, some of the big clubs wanting to um, create a league. It's not necessarily um, either, a, we, you know, we stay with the current system where, where, where clubs in Europe play in the domestic leagues and then the the UEFA Champions League every year or a breakaway European Super League. I, I don't think it's as simple as that. I think we're going to see big uh, fundamental changes in club football over the next five to ten years. I really do. I do think that there's going to be more opportunities for big European clubs to play possibly in a FIFA Global Champions League. This is on the table at the moment. It's being discussed in the context of a Club World Cup. Um, I think you'll probably see that kind of model before a European Super League. You'll see a model that is created within the system, within the pyramid, um, where big European clubs are playing against each other more often. Um, for Australia, this is, I think, an opportunity for us um, as a code because if we have a global Champions League in the end, it ma makes the vehicles to get to that competition more important. So the Asian Champions League, for instance, um, because you'd have to qualify through the Asian Champions League to, to get to the Global Champions League. Um, what that means is that our clubs here in Australia need to be more competitive. Um, and things like salary caps at the moment in the, the, the shape that they are, they, they actually prohibit clubs from actually growing and being more competitive against our neighbors in East Asia, for example. So I think that, um, this conversation, well, it is happening. I think it, I think we will see some major changes. And I think, us here in Australia, we really need to think about what opportunities exist for our clubs when these changes do make at a uh, are made at a global level. Does the golden share give you much sway in the salary cap space? It's uh, look, salary cap is is financial regulation. Um, it, it salary cap discussion, I think, needs to begin within within clubland for sure, but it's very related to club licensing and club licensing is an area that um, FFA would retain under the unbundling. Um, an aspect of club licensing is financial regulation. So if you look at, uh, if you look at UEFA Champions League, for example, they have a club licensing and financial fair play system. And financial fair play is a form of a salary cap because the clubs are capped at spending by what they earn. 
so as we start a discussion next year on what a club licensing looks like system looks like in Australia, which is what we've agreed to with the clubs, I think this issue will will come up. Um, maybe finally, while we're sort of talking broadly as well, it's it's a global trend. Also, you know, with huge impacts happening here, um, is, is broadcasting that everything we know about TV rights has been blown up into a million pieces over the last few years and will continue to change over the next few. Like uh, there's going to be companies we've never even heard of before who are probably going to enter our market and, and hold massive sway. Um, the, the, the bubbles burst there. And as a sport, we've been reliant on TV revenue for a long, long time, too reliant probably. How do we replace that revenue, especially at a time when um, – I, I guess our, our ratings aren't strong. The general interest, at least in the domestic product, has dropped off. So the money we could get in an ideal world where the bubble hadn't burst would be lower anyway, and now the whole landscape's changed. That's a lot of revenue we need to get into the game. Yep. Um, how can we replace it? Um, it's it's a challenge. It's going to be a challenge for the sport. Um, if we look at the traditional um, – professional game model here you you normally look at three streams in australia it's broadcast sponsorship and match day revenue these are your three streams um match day is a problem next year sponsorship will be a problem and you're right bro- the broadcast market is is changing um i think we need to look at different revenue streams um you've heard me bang on about a transfer system already that's a fourth revenue stream for our country um another though specifically related to broadcast. I don't think we can just go out and just change a broadcaster and we get the same amount of money and this is this won't work. Um, I think we need to move into the OTT world, into the, the, the digital space. But um, that sounds all, all, all good. It's good blue chip thinking. But in a practical sense, that would require significant investment to set something like that up. Um, so we would need to look at potentially bringing more capital, I think, into the sport to allow us to invest in such a vehicle. But I think if we were able to do that, then that's something that would set our sport up um, very well for the future. On a somewhat related note, and before we throw it open, Archie, um, how are we looking on the on the sponsorship front, James? Um, we've, we've bled quite a few this year, um, sponsors who are probably aligned with certain people who are no longer on the FFA board. Um, uh, and it doesn't – I mean, we got Cadbury, which was good for the Matildas. Um, how many more are you in conversations with and and, and what's the interest um, like out there in, in the corporate marketplace for football and domestic football as well? Yeah. So as part of the unbundling, uh, and I think this is an important point, the, the clubs are now driving sponsorship for the league. So w- w- we don't – we obviously uh, coordinate and certainly if we can bring in a sponsor that helps the league, this is in our interest to do so. But I want to make it clear that when I talk about sponsorship, I'm talking about national teams, I'm talking about grassroots because that's the conversations that we're driving. And and actually the market's outstanding. It's outstanding. It's, it's different than what it was. Um, there is so much interest in being involved in particular with the Matildas and with community, um, uh, we, we at the moment can't keep up with the demand of the amount of conversations that are going on. What I can tell this audience is that in the next one to two weeks, we will announce a major sponsor. Um, but there's another two or three that are in the pipeline and they're not, they're not small companies. So I think, um, we're very lucky. We're very fortunate. I think the Women's World Cup and the strength of the Matilda's brand at the moment 
is really driving this and so too is our base which is multicultural it's young and it's got a good balance between boys and girls and i think that's actually our strengths um just to finish off on that um we, we lost Audi the i think uh, late 2018 it might have even been that feels like a real long time ago um but they seem like exactly the kind of company we probably want to keep in the game you know a growing company a big company and they were involved with the mini ruse program which is you know talking about the strength of the assets that ffa has i mean that's that's massive i mean are you are we talking about replacements for them the socceroos also don't have a, a naming rights sponsor haven't had i think since the start of the year as well are these the sort of properties that that sponsors are looking at getting involved with yeah that's right i i, I look in level of interest at the moment it's certainly um matildas it's women's football and community that's really the, the 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 sweet spot at the moment archie all right so we're open up to questions how many people we've got for questions okay so if we can just form a covid safe line <laughs> that'd be fantastic um my question is, what the sponsor you just mentioned, which team is that for? You said a major sponsor. Can you reveal the, not the, the, the sponsor, but the team? Sorry, which, which team? You said, you said there'll be a major sponsor that, that, that announced major in a sponsor few weeks. Into that. Is that for a team or is that for FFA? Or? It, well, it's, for, it's for the sport. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Very vague. <laughs> First question. The journalists, the journalists will sit down. Uh, we've had some fantastic discussions today about uh, the A-League and clubs, and you're the first person, though, to mention directly the connection between the clubs and Asia through the Asian Champions League. Obviously, that's been a competition that's been problematic in Australia in terms of catching any kind of uh, public support. What can we do about that? And is uh, a move to encourage more engagement there part of a broader strategy perhaps about engagement with Asia that we keep sort of kicking down the track a bit and not really ever addressing? Um, Australian teams in um, ASEAN competitions, for instance, uh, what, what do you, how do you see the future of all of that? I think it's a really, really good question. Um, I think... Uh, one of the smartest decisions the games made in the past 15 years was to move from Oceania to Asia. For me, that was a, that was a real game changer. Um, we're in a, I think a good spot at the moment. We've got Chris Neku, who's on the board. We've got a lot of representation in different uh, committees uh, in the AFC. And I think where we need to go from is, is, is we're now accepted. And two, three years ago, you might have questioned that we're accepted in Asia. But where we really got to get to is we've really got to start being able to shape conversations that are happening in Asia. Um, because one, because we can add value and two, because these are important conversations and they, they, they help the member in this case us. Um, I think our future is certainly in Asia. I think we've got to become more effective. We've got to be more present in Asia. And I think the more we can play in Asian competitions, and the more relevance that the AFC Champions League has, which it will once we get a global Champions League, because it'll be, as I said, the vehicle that gets the clubs to the global Champions League, I think the better. The other thing that we've agreed with the A-League clubs on in the unbundling is that half a slot from the A-League would move to the FFA Cup. Um, so what that means in practical terms is a club in 
in Sydney, the Marconis or the South Melbournes in, 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 in Melbourne or the Brisbane Strikers in Brisbane, they have an opportunity now um, to qualify for the Asian Champions League through the FFA Cup. And that's another way that we can engage with this competition. Um, one, one last point was the strategic point. Yes, I think the more interest in Asia, the more we're engaging as a football community in Asia, I think the more interest from government in our sport because, you know, you, you, we've got a king in, in Malaysia, for example, the king of the country. He used to be the Football Association president. He used to be on the AFC Executive Committee. In our code, we can WhatsApp and have banter, you know, with him, if, you know, if, when Man, Man City beats Arsenal. And and other codes just can't do this, so I think it's uh, it's it's a win-win for our code. Okay. That, sorry, you didn't specifically mention the ASEAN connection. Oh, Is that the Parliament strategy. You see us getting involved there in a way that we just haven't done. Yeah, brilliant. So we we politically we're involved in the ASEAN Football Federation. So Asia's split up into five different zones, and ASEAN is one, and we're part of ASEAN. I think that's a good place to be. Um, I would like to see us in the future participate more in ASEAN competition. So the Suzuki Cup, for instance, um, this is an opportunity for us. And, and the, 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 the potential of ASEAN, if you look at things globally, is, is really interesting because they're high growth markets and they're big football markets. Indonesia is a perfect example. You've got 240 odd million people and they know one sport and that's football and that's our code. But I just want to um, jump in quickly on, on the half slot there for the FFA Cup. So I'm assuming that's been moved from the grand final. Is that right? We're still working through the, the, the details at the moment. But what I can say for certain at this point is that half a slot for the Champions League will be given to the FFA Cup. But how the um, how it works within the A-League and the, the premiership of the, of, of the league, at the moment, we're still discussing. Okay. And how are we looking on the FFA Cup front, by the way, for next year, um, knowing that um, for some ridiculous reason, we can't even go to Queensland right now, even though there's not really much doing in the COVID space. I mean, that's all going to clear up hopefully before Christmas. Yep. Um, but big disruption at grassroots level, MPL level this year. Um, the possibility of travel restrictions being reintroduced at a whim, as we've seen um, in Adelaide over the last week, the, the, the world's shortest lockdown. Thank God. Yep. And go home for Christmas. <laughs> um, but that must mean planning a competition like the FFA Cup is a nightmare, one that you've probably not even started looking at because it's just too far in the future and you don't know. Um, I, I agree with all above except for that we've not looked at it. We are looking at it. Um, we want the FFA Cup to go ahead, um, especially because we think we can relaunch it in a year that um, the community, because it is a community competition, is going to be important as we, as we come out of COVID. What we're looking at doing are things around making sure the FFA Cup is the last game of the football season to give it the, um, um, the, 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 the importance of the competition. We're looking at the access to, to Asia. We're looking at a potential name change for the competition. We're looking at it being more open um, in terms of the competition format. So there's a lot of interesting elements that we will be relaunching in 21. Um, just quickly on that again, buddy. Sorry to keep cutting you off, but you just said FFA Cup last game of the season. I'd imagine that would have to be at some point in maybe November, which leads me to think that we might be looking at a winter season because you can't really be having an FFA Cup that runs across summer just because of the nature of, of grassroots competition. Where are we at with, um, I guess, the decision on when our season will be 
moving forward and how does that work knowing that the A-League clubs obviously have a degree of autonomy but you've got a golden share and I'd imagine that probably falls in the golden share category to some degree. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it, it does. It falls into golden share, but it's also a regulatory um, matter because governing bodies uh, at national level govern national calendar issues like FIFA governs the international match calendar. Um, it's a conversation we need to have with the clubs. Uh, I personally, personally like uh, the idea of winter football because it means the product's better, um, but it's not just about winter football it's it's more about the alignment of the code and that's a conversation that we're having with the a-league clubs we've been very um upfront with them that we want a one football season a one football calendar this is important um and and that's gonna that for that conversation will be forced upon everyone when we set up the transfer system because because when you set up a transfer system and you have transfer windows it's very complicated to to play split seasons phil okay thank you um, James, I think there is a general belief in Australia that the um, Matildas are strong enough to go far in the 2023 World Cup, okay? Now, touching on your point earlier that you expect them to at least win a medal or something like that, I don't think you need me to tell you that the pressures of home expectation can, can play funny tricks. Wouldn't it be better to just let them play and without pressure to win, because I'm pretty sure they will be much more comfortable in the way, rather than fearing of failure, fearing defeat that would distress the whole country, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a very, that's a very considerate point, Phil, um, and, and and I take that point. When when we set these goals, they're not they're not just done with with me and the management team or, or myself and the board. The, the, these are goals a team sets as well so when we were recruiting the matildas coach this year um i spoke with the matildas the the leadership team i said you know what's i don't want you getting involved with the appointment but i'm happy to speak to you about what's important because i'd heard all these rumors i want this kind of but this this is just these are just rumors they're a group of professionals and what this team said very clearly is we think we have a team that can win and we've got three opportunities in the next three years we've got um the olympics then next then in 22 we have the asian cup then we have the fifa world cup on home soil and then actually we have a fourth which is the olympics in 24 and we want to win so go out and get us a coach that will win and i think that sums up our view we want them to win um we've put a coach in that has experience and has won um, both the olympics and the world cups before um so these are things that are not just um management's views but they're also the players as well and and i i have to to, to put that on the table because the players are, are really professional and they want to do something um that no other team in the, the 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 country has done before well, two quick ones for you um james i want you to cast your mind back to your first press conference um and something that you mentioned as you first addressed us as ceo you mentioned that you were looking forward to enjoying the challenge and to have fun. Are you having fun? <laughs> <laughs> well, today, yes. I mean, Manly and with football people, we're talking football, absolutely. Look, it, it's um, the answer is yes. Uh, look, I, I get uh, – I didn't come back to, to administer a sport. It's not really my style. I came back to change it and the – 
although there's been a lot of frustrating moments with COVID, it's presented the opportunity because things become unlocked and it means we can push the dial forward. So that's actually what gets me up every morning. Um, my family, my kids, my wife knows that. So um, actually I think what COVID's done is it's given an opportunity to actually transform the sport more than what it would have had we not have had COVID. So as someone who um, really prides himself on being transformational, I'm, I am having fun at the moment, yes. And just quickly, um, China has withdrawn from hosting the 2022 AFC Under-23 Championships and there are invitations ready for hosting that one and 2024. Would you entertain hosting those tournaments in Australia? Yes, yes, absolutely. We would entertain that. Um, I, th I just want to manage everyone's expectations. We've got... Uh, two tournaments next year that are Asian tournaments, AFC tournaments under 17, under 20 women's tournaments. Then we've got the FIFA World Cup. So, it, you know, we've gone from not hosting anything to hosting a lot of competitions. So we'll, we'll be putting a hat in the ring um, for those, at least one of those tournaments. But I think a lot of other member federations uh, across Asia will as well. So I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't hold my breath. But the more competitions, the more global competitions that we can bring back to our local uh, communities, the better. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Brendan. I'm actually not a journalist or anything. I'm just actually a football coach just here because I love the game. So I've got a question for James in terms of coaching and development. Uh, is there any potential chance of a full-time program for our late players at MPL level at the A-Leg Academies to be training full-time and with that is there any potential chance to bring back ex-socceroos to be specialist coaches to work with these players yeah it's look that's a that's a, a a good a good question i'm glad you asked it um in our 11 principles we actually dedicated one principle to coaches um and that's because there's a lot of uh narrative in that piece of work around developing players um and the reality is we don't have the scope, the numbers to compete with some of the big countries around the world, the, um, the, the, the Brazils of the world, the Frances, for example. We just don't have the numbers. But I remember, I remember learning a lesson um, when I went to Japan about four or five years ago and I asked the J Japanese FA president around how they won the 211 Women's World Cup. And he said, well, 10 years earlier, um, what we did is, is we, we put a lot of emphasis, a lot of programs around coaching. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, we looked at the women's national team of the US. We didn't have the numbers. We didn't have the quantity. So we focused on the quality and the way we got more quality players was through our, our, our coaching. So that's has resonated with me. And that's why I think the more investment we can put into coaches, I think the better for the sport. Uh, hi, James. Thanks for fielding my question. In uh, 18 months time, we reached a significant milestone in this country which will represent the centenary of international football and uh, on June 17, 1922 the first Socceroos were in Dunedin and I think you know what this question will be lots of people on the stream will be pleased I've asked it what is the FFA doing currently uh, with that just over the hill to represent or commemorate that magnificent milestone I know a lot of fans want to see the Socceroos and the Matildas in Dunedin uh, thank you for taking my question good, good question um, we, we we have a very good relationship with New Zealand Football Federation. Um, we talked before about Wellington. Uh, 
this is this is a uh, we have to talk to we're talking with a club in in, in this instance but, but with the federation itself we have a very good relationship we went through the bidding process together we're um at the back end of negotiating a memorandum of understanding with new zealand football um and as part of that memorandum of understanding we want to reignite the uh, trans tasman competition so there will be more games against uh, New Zealand, as far as we're concerned, over the coming years. And one competition we are talking about is what we would do on our 100-year anniversary. So that's a conversation that is uh, happening at the moment. What happens if Wellington Phoenix win the FFA Cup? Ooh. <laughs> I just realised that then. Adrian, <laughs> Sorry you to... all the complicated questions. <laughs> <laughs> um I'd like to bring Benita up to say a few words, obviously. Um, Benita will put the finishing touches on this session, I guess. Will you say something, Benita? Do you want to? No, you finish off this. Oh, okay. All right. There we go. Um, Vincenzo, I'll let you take this away uh, to, to wrap this one up. Right. I mean, you could have done it, but I'll, I'll have yeah. you do it. I'll, no, I'll do it if you like. No, I just, thanks, James. I'm like, it's a good opportunity to, I guess, dive a little bit deeper into all the topics that interest us all. We could be here for another couple of hours, to be honest. Um, there's so much on the plate for, for football, uh, a lot of concerns in the game at the moment, a lot of opportunities ahead as well, and a lot of a lot of worry that we might not capitalise upon those opportunities. But, um, yeah, look, fingers crossed we can, um, and hopefully this year is, I guess, the start of something big for the game. So thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. Round of applause. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Well, there you go. That was James Johnson speaking with Vince Rigari from Nine Media and the Sydney Morning Herald. All of the Football Writers Festival um, was brought to you or brought to us all with the help of the Johnny Warren Football Foundation, Football Nation Radio, Synergy Sports, Fair Play Publishing, and there was a live stream of almost every single session provided by Streamgate. So thank you to all of them. I thought one of the interesting little side issues in that discussion with James Johnson is he was quite coy when he was talking to us about the pilot project he's doing with, quote, a state federation on a new governance model. Uh, it was it was even funny because I know who that state federation is. It's Queensland, but he didn't want to say it, which was interesting. It was interesting in relation to many things at the moment. And um, it's a shame that James didn't have the courage to actually say that it's Queensland. So good on Queensland for being part of that pilot project. It's always very smart to get in first with something like that because you can help shape the way it's going to be. That's it for Football Insiders for this week. Um, we'll be back next week with a completely different session from the Football Writers Festival, and that's Craig Foster speaking with journalist Michael Kane. Until then, stay safe. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au. 